0: Hey, this is Terrell, the college pastor at Grace Bible Church. Thanks for checking out the Crosspoint podcast. Uh, This particular podcast is a frank discussion of sexuality and how the gospel of Jesus intersects with it. Uh, Given that Crosspoint is targeted toward college students, we felt the need to discuss uh, sensitive issues such as pornography, homosexuality, and the role of sexual pleasure in the life of married people. So, be aware that we wanted to be as comprehensive as possible in these areas, and portions of the discussion can be raw and even explicit. Uh, we hope you find this sermon helpful as we understand what it means to be a disciple of Jesus in this culture. Hey, uh, so just so you know, uh, tonight is particularly heavy. Uh, To me, particularly long, and if I say it's long, probably means it won't go short. Uh, um, The Trotties, uh, I've been friends with them for quite a while, and for them to be open enough to share that uh, is huge. I think stuff like this doesn't get talked about enough in the church. It usually seems like the church is the place where, uh, where either the leadership paints a culture of perfection, and so things that actually deal with real people never get talked about. Uh, And so everybody here comes, and we all feel like we need to put on a face, and we can't really talk about heavy things. We can't talk about hurtful things. We can't talk about our mistakes. Um, And so we never find healing for the things that are most important. We never find healing for our biggest mistakes, and we carry around uh, guilt and shame for way too long, and we never let the gospel of Jesus intersect uh, the, 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 the darkest parts of ourselves uh, And so I think it's huge that they were able to, to share that with you guys um, And so tonight is, uh, as you see, it's huge on the screen We're going to talk about the gospel and sexuality uh, This has been on my mind for since we decided we were going to talk about it It's been particularly heavy on me uh, I'm trying to talk about, it, talk about this in a way that breathes life into you knowing that this is probably a sensitive issue for for everyone in here for a thousand different reasons. Um, Maybe from your past, uh, maybe there's been abuse in your past, Uh, maybe you have been abused or maybe actually you have abused someone else in this area. Um, My guess is, without a doubt, uh, there are guys and girls in here that struggle with pornography there are guys and girls in here who don't struggle with pornography or just actively engaging in it. Um, my guess is that there's people in here that are sleeping with their boyfriends, sleeping with their girlfriends, and don't see a problem with it at all, um, and are committed to Jesus and think that those go hand in hand. Like uh, My guess is there's people in here who are considering whether homosexuality is a lifestyle that needs to be pursued if it's in accordance with what the Bible says can I do that and still be a Christian like all these questions that are all over the place and so my guess is maybe that hits some of you and there's maybe a thousand other things that could could be said Uh, so I don't typically preach in this way I typically preach a section from the Bible and we talk about that section, and I explain it, and then we apply it. I don't like to, to preach topically. I don't like to grab an idea and then find verses in the Bible to talk about that. I think that can be dangerous. Uh, so it's been particularly heavy for me to do it this way. But we've got about six uh, scriptures that we're going to look at to unpack this. Um, and so I guess my prayer, my prayer is... Um, We can put it this way. Psalm 141 says, uh, uh, let a righteous man rebuke me and let it be like oil on my head and let my head not refuse it. And so that's been important in my life a thousand times because I don't want to hear what Scripture says a lot. Uh, There's a lot in me that does not want to hear what Scripture has to say. It has been a struggle for me, even when I became a believer, to say a book governs my life. That's been difficult. That's not easy. I didn't wake up one day and was like, huh, I wonder if I'll just try to do everything this book says. Yeah, it's not been easy. And so as I have decided to follow Jesus in this way, and then I have decided, okay, Scripture does seem to be... I do believe that Jesus was who He said He was. Okay, what does that mean? Okay, that means what He said about the Old Testament, I've got to understand and agree with what the apostles handed down to us in the New Testament as His teachings I've got to pattern my life after. It wasn't easy. And I wouldn't do that if I did not believe that Jesus was the Son of God who was resurrected. When a guy rises from the dead, and I believe that was a historical event that shapes my life, then I have to go back and look at what he says. um, And the way that he understands the Bible is going to be uh, extremely important uh, to me as I try to understand that. And so when I talk about uh, let a righteous man rebuke me and let it be like oil upon my head, there are things in my life that I don't want to bring under the magnifying glass of Scripture. And I don't want to bring them underneath there because I'm pretty sure it's going to require something of me. And, and so I have to force myself into that. I have to understand... A few major presuppositions that my God is for me and loves me and wants me to flourish. That he is not against me, he does not hate me, and he's not setting up rules in my life for the sake of setting up rules. And so I have to come with those presuppositions. I have to come to the table knowing this may be difficult, but I know it will be for my good. And I need to subject myself to the lordship of Jesus in this area. So that's my prayer tonight as we talk. I'm going to be as, as raw as I think I need to be. I'm not going to be too raw about it, but I am going to give you not the church's teaching on this. I want to give to you what I believe Jesus handed down to the apostles Okay, that's where I'm coming from. This is what Jesus handed down to the apostles for the life of a human. Um, and, and that's my prayer, that it would be like oil upon our heads and that we would not refuse it. That we wouldn't refuse something that is supposed to be life-giving and that I believe is life-giving. So, uh, whew, let's get started in that then. Uh, I want to start uh, and paint a picture of God first. Then I want to look at what he says about a particular subject, sexuality. And then I want to look at what the gospel says about uh, the gospel itself. How does that interact with where we are? And then, and then how should we walk away from tonight is where we're going to end. So, I guess I'm going to be jumping around between texts. I'm going to be uh, diligent to, to explain the text to you. I'm not just using it to support my argument. Like, here, the Bible says this. Um, I, I, I'm going to explain it in a way that, that hopefully makes sense, and I won't fully explain all the text because that would just be impossible. Uh, so, and they'll be up here. You can go in your Bible if you want, but they will be up on the screen. So uh, let's get started. Let's, let's jump into this. Um, so we'll start in Genesis, of course. Um, check out Genesis 1, to 31. So this follows the creation narrative. This follows the six days of creation. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. and there was mourning the sixth day. What we're getting in that chunk there is uh, God has spent uh, the, the well, the author of Genesis has spent the preceding chapters explaining that God comes onto the scene and nothing exists, and then he begins to create things out of nothing, and then he begins to bring order to the things that he has created. So he creates a place of matter and existence, and that place of matter and existence is chaotic, and then he brings order to it. So that's the creation poem the creation narrative is that God bringing order from chaos and then it culminates in a garden which has order not chaos and he puts humans in it and then he gives it to them and he says to them enjoy this be fruitful in it multiply in it and you will rule over it fill the earth Subdue it and have dominion over everything. So we first come across with the notion that God didn't create and just put man's in there and be like, okay, I'm still going to control everything. You don't really have any choices here. You're just going to sort of be a puppet in this whole thing. For some reason, He puts them in there, and then He actually says to them, okay, multiply, fill this space, and subdue it. And and what He's going to say later is to Adam, He's say, T- work the ground and bring order to chaos. Outside of the garden, in the way that I've brought order to chaos. So here we are already seeing that as image bearers, humanity, as image bearers of God, exists to bring order to the world. They call this the cultural mandate go and make culture. Culture is good. Go and make culture, right? Be architects be poets, be English professors, but go and bring order, right, in the way that God has done it, go and glorify God in this manner. Enjoy it, receive it, find the pleasure in it, and go do it, right? So not, hey, here's a garden, and I'm going to set up some rules around it, okay? And it's going to be okay. Here's the garden. Everything is yours. Everything is yours. Now bring order, the cultural mandate. And then you're going to see something. I'm going to show you this uh, specifically in Proverbs. He's going to say to do this in a particular way. So it's not subdue the earth and take advantage of everything. It's not subdue the earth and ruin everything but bring order and cultivate life. So if you've been here before, we talk about this a lot. The original purpose of humanity is to be with God, be alive with God, and cultivate life. The cultural mandate, cultivate life. And the way that we cultivate life is in accordance with the way that God has ordained and created everything to be. So I want to show you this from somewhere else. Uh, I think paints it uh, quite beautifully. Uh, go with me to Proverbs 8. And we're going we're gonna to start at verse 22. And, and what's going to go on here is uh, this is particularly about wisdom. And what's really beautiful about this is that God is going to, uh, 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 I'm sorry, speaking through the author of Proverbs, what we get is the understanding is that the order which is in creation was actually instituted before creation began. So, so follow me on this. This, when it says, ages ago I was set up, uh, it's speaking of wisdom. Ages ago I was set up, at the first, before the beginning of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water, Before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth. Before he had made the earth with its fields, or the first of the dust of the world, when he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, in the children of man, he's saying there is wisdom is, and this is weird that it, it, wisdom is being like personified as being with God while everything is created, and then as God formats and orders all of creation to function in a certain way, that it is the delight of wisdom, and that wisdom is in accordance with it, and it is for the delight of men. Do you see that? So look, look then what it says. I was beside him like a master workman. Daily I was his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of men. And now, O sons, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Hear instruction and be wise and do not neglect it. Blessed is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting beside my doors. Now listen, for whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who fails to find me injures himself. All who hate me love death. So the biblical presupposition that I'm coming from tonight the presupposition that I come to as we talk about this is like I said earlier my God loves me and is for me and anything that comes from his hand is for my good and for his glory because this is the way it was set up in the beginning that this Reality was given to men so they might be with God, enjoy his creation, and create culture, and create life, and be a part of this in a way that brings pleasure and delight to men and glory to to God in the process, as we are his image and bear it to the world, as we are showing the world. And I don't just mean being right. I mean, I mean doing beautiful things. I mean creating culture. I mean writing songs. I mean writing poetry. Being creative and doing what God did at the first. In this way, we reflect him and we delight in what he has made and so bring glory to him. But we do it in accordance with the way that he has set up the world to function in accordance with the way that He set up the world to function. So when He gives commands, He doesn't give arbitrary commands. He knows the way the world works. And so He gives commands and addresses us in ways that we will cultivate life in accordance with the way that He has made life to work. Does that make sense? Follow me? Pretty good? Okay. So His commands are in line with the wisdom and order of creation for the good of His creation and for His glory. Not... I don't come with the presupposition that God is against me and wants to spoil my good time and my life along with it. If we come to God in that way, we have first just not gotten the gospel. We haven't gotten the gospel. If if we can't look at the person of Jesus and see That God is for humanity, that God is so for humanity that he is willing to die for humanity's mistakes. If we can't look at that and see first that God is obviously for us and that his commands must be for our life and for our good, then we will take the next step and just feel like it's our duty, and it's out of something we got to do, and we don't let the gospel shape the way we view God, and then secondly, don't let the gospel shape the way we view God's commands to his children. So I come with the presupposition that God loves me, he cares for me, he wants my good, he wants his glory, but my good will be a part of that. He has created a reality in which that is possible, that my good and his glory do not have to. To be against each other. And there's where Jesus comes in and makes that possible. And we're going to hash that out even more. Um, and so what I mean. And a few people have said this. Uh, at Lewis, C.S. Lewis said this. I'm going to read something from him in just a second. Uh, but that God has instituted life in such a way. That we would maximize our pleasure in accordance with the way that he has created life to function. And that most of our time is spent reveling in the lower pleasures that we never maximize the pleasure that is promised to us as sons and daughters of God who do and be what we were created to do and be. And so we waste our time on lower pleasures when higher pleasure is promised to us. And we waste our time there. And so... Uh, if you if you've heard of the book Screwtape Letters, it's just, just a it's a, an older book by C. S. Lewis, and it's just it, it's a it's a um, it's just a narrative. It's not a theological book, and the book surrounds the idea of, oddly enough, a demon writing letter to a demon writing letters to another demon, telling telling them how to trip men up, and it's like this demon who's been doing this for a while, writing, I believe, to his younger nephew. And telling him, okay, do this to men, do this to men, do this to men. And listen, he paints this so beautifully uh, that I wanted to read it to you. Uh, this is what the older demon says to the younger demon uh, in reference to pleasure. And keep in mind it's a demon talking so you don't get confused. Never forget that when we are dealing with any pleasure, in its healthy and normal and satisfying form, we are, in a sense, on the enemy's ground, the enemy being God. We are, in a sense, on the enemy's ground. I know we have won many a soul through pleasure. All the same, it is his invention, not ours. He made the pleasures. All our research so far has not enabled us to produce one, All we can do is to encourage the humans to take the pleasures which our enemy has produced at times or in ways or in degrees which he has forbidden. Hence, we always try to work away from the natural condition of any pleasure to that in which it is least natural, least reminiscent of its maker, and least pleasurable. And so, uh, to me, that paints beautifully, beautifully, beautifully the idea that all the things that we find pleasure in are the invention of God. Specifically the one we're talking about tonight, which is sex. It was, it, it, it was, this wasn't the devil's idea. This was the, the idea of God to create our bodies in such a way that we might have an experience of incredible pleasure with each other. He fashioned our bodies in this way. He did it and it was delightful to Him so that we might find pleasure in it. And, and what happens, what tends to happen with humanity is we take the way that God defines and ordains and puts life to work. We take the wisdom that was with Him before the ages began and we take turn it on its head, and we do it the way we want to do it. We do it how we see fit. We do it the way that seems right to us. And it seems good and okay and good and pleasurable for a moment, and then the fallout happens. So uh, I'm going to show you. No, actually, we're not going to get there yet. So, I I, I want to look really briefly at at a couple places where we see that sex is ordained by God and sex is good, and what it's sort of for, if it wasn't obvious. If it wasn't obvious. Uh, This one's good. We don't get to read this in uh, church too much, but this is fun. Uh, Song of Solomon. Uh, This is what the whole book of the Song of, of Solomon is about. Uh, if, if you feel like this weird thing, like, is God really down for this sex thing? Are we misusing it? Is it only for children? Okay, read the Song of Solomon. It's, in, it's, it's a little too much. It really is. I read it and I feel dirty a little bit. Um, but, but Okay, you'll feel this with me, actually. 7, uh, verse 6. How beautiful and pleasant you are. O oh, loved one, with all your delights, your, statue, your stature is like a palm tree, and your breasts are like its clusters. I say I will climb that palm tree and lay hold of its fruit. You're kidding me. This is hilarious. <laughs> I say I will climb the palm tree and lay hold of its roots. Oh, may your breasts be like clusters of the vine, and the scent of your breath like apples, and your mouth like the best wine later on actually earlier it's going to say eat and drink your fill you lovers eat and drink your fill not do this a couple times for kids don't enjoy it just get it out of the way but eat and drink your fill i'll climb that palm tree i'm gonna lay hold of its fruit you see it and this is this is throughout the whole thing there's a there's a I don't know if you guys ever listen to podcasts. Driscoll gets too far with this. He goes too far. Like to him, everything that even talks about. No, I'm not even going to tell you what he thinks. I'm not even going to tell you. (laughs) I'm not. I'm not going to tell you. Um, So, our bodies were created in a way to find pleasure and joy in this. This single act releases a rush of endorphins and chemicals that is only able to be recreated by really really powerful drugs and they're still not the same our bodies were created in this way this act does this it causes these endorphins and these chemicals to rage in your body for just pleasure just for Enjoyment. And the thing that we have to understand is what exactly is going on when this, happen, when this happens. And what we have to understand first is that this is going on and this rush of endorphins is going on absolutely for pleasure. And so I would say the first reason that God gives us sex is absolutely for pleasure. But the second reason I think is really, really a product of that is knowledge and oneness, that we might know our partner, that we might know them completely and deeply and fully and actually bring oneness. So uh, read Genesis two eighteen. Again, you don't have to go there. It'll be on the screen. For Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this, this is beautiful. This at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And then there's this aside to the reader. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So in this environment of exposure and trust, in this environment of exposure and trust and two beings actually causing The highest amount of pleasure in the human natural existence, we have two human beings causing that to each other in an environment of complete openness, complete vulnerability, and complete trust, what, what you're going to see the Hebrew scripture say is they're actually becoming one flesh. Because they are doing this thing to each other, they're actually are tying themselves to each other emotionally and physically. And the way the Hebrew language will say is spiritually. So a guy that I listen to a lot will actually interpret the Hebrew word for dode, this sexual love, as a mingling of souls that here two souls mingle with each other. And it makes sense that this happens in this way because you have two beings in this incredibly vulnerable and incredibly open environment. They're actually causing a degree of pleasure that would tie them emotionally, would tie them physically, and tie them spiritually. There is no other place like that for vulnerability. There is no other recreation of trusts like that in the human experience and so we're seeing one of the reasons that sex is given to mankind one is for pleasure and then in this oneness and knowledge not like knowledge of your partner happens um and then this is to where this makes sense to me then Here's this obvious children, this third use for sex. If this is actually the uniting, uniting spiritually, one flesh physically of a man and a woman, here we actually have in this... In this act, we have the power to create another human being that is actually made up of both of these other beings. This is ridiculous. This doesn't make sense to me. I'd still, I still don't get this. When I look at my kid and I'm like, you're made up of part of me and part of her. That weirds me out. That's crazy. Crazy. This is the only way by which another being enters the universe. Another being that can experience God, that can experience life, that can experience pain and sorrow and beauty and joy is in this one act where man and woman are united and it just so happens that, they, that another being comes out of that. It is crazy powerful. It's crazy. It doesn't make any sense. I don't get that. Okay, so it seems children follows here. Here comes the pleasure, bringing oneness, and then just as a picture of the oneness, let's just—it's like God was like in heaven with the Trinity, and he's like, "It'll be so awesome that we'll just make a human out of it," and it's like, (laughs) "Yeah," and they were all like, "Sweet," and you know, like that's to me, children's not primary. That's like the third. That's like the third reason. Um, and then just something uh, I, that I wanted to put in there because I wanted to prove uh, this last point after I say this. Uh, you're going to see comfort being one of the uses uh, of sex, of sex in, in the Old Testament especially. Uh, the story that, that uh, is particular to this one is um, David sees a woman bathing on a roof that's not his wife and who's married to someone else. Uh, This is King David, who the Bible says was a man after God's own heart. So you'll have to think about that as you think about what he does. He likes her, invites her over, has sex with her, impregnates her, and then tries to cover it up by bringing her husband home, who is, the, who is uh, a pretty high-ranking uh, commander in one of his armies. Uh, he won't go sleep with his wife while his people are in the battlefield, so he stays in David's house. So David's like out of options, so he actually sends a message back with Uriah to hand to his officer, to, and, and that message tells his officer to send Uriah to the front line so that he's killed, so that David might not. Um, you know, be found out for this um, and well i 'm not even worried about time tonight, so i 'm just going to tell you how that goes. Uh, the prophet comes to David, and he says to David. I'm going to tell you a story about a rich guy that has a bunch of sheep and a poor guy that has this one sheep. And that sheep sleeps in his house with his children. It's like a pet to his family. It's actually a part of the family. And the prophet says that to David. And then he says, and then guess what happens? This rich guy has some people over for dinner. And and the rich guy actually goes and steals the poor guy's one sheep, kills it, and feeds it to the people that came and visit him. And the prophet's like, David, what do you think we should do about that guy? And David's like, kill him. And then the prophet tells David, that's you, you're the one who stole the sheep. And so you see David broken, falling before the Lord, asking for forgiveness for what he's done. That his sin was not in secret. That it had been seen and found out. And you're going to see Psalm 51 is in light of that. It's the most beautiful psalm that you'll ever read. Uh, like, don't take your spirit from me. Cleanse me from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my shame. And then the question that I think that, is, that you have to ask here is the Lord does forgive David. And then the question is, how does he forgive David? And then, and then one of the guys that I like to listen to says it this way. What does Uriah's dad say about David's forgiveness? No. You're just going for, like, to forgive him. You're just going to forgive him. Just like that, he killed my son. And the reason he's forgiven is because of Jesus Everyone before Jesus and after Jesus can be forgiven of their sin because of the blood of the Son of God. So David himself finds forgiveness in this. But then we see Uriah is dead. So David actually takes Bathsheba to be his wife. Uh, He takes Bathsheba to be his wife. And you're going to see what the prophet Nathan tells David as he says, Forgive me, forgive me. And he says, Yeah, you're forgiven. Uh, But this son will die. This son will die. And so you're going to see that actually take place. The son dies. Bathsheba's distraught. And David goes in to comfort his wife. And what we understand from the text is he goes in and he has sex with her. And it's for comfort. It's not for pleasure, children. It's for comfort. Comfort. And I think that one really ties in what I think you're going to see in every single one of these. That the pleasure of sex is primarily found as you are focused on the other person. If you believe that the pleasure of sex is for you primarily, then you will not find and maximize the pleasure of sex. It in all of these is found as you are committed to the life and the good of the other person and the other person committed to the life and the good of you. And in this, and comfort is such a huge one. It just makes, that that makes sense to me. He goes in and this is about his wife. It's not him trying to get, get off. It's for his wife to comfort her and to be with her that in that place of knowledge and trust and vulnerability, healing happens. Healing happens. Right? Sexual healing. Right, sorry. Uh, I just came across. I was like, that's where that song comes from. Sorry. Whoa. Sorry, I brought y'all out of there. I shouldn't have done that. Um but what we have to understand is that yes sex was given for pleasure, for children, for oneness, for comfort. And it's done and it's it's done according to the way of wisdom and it's done according to the order of God as it is in focus on the other person in serving the other person and in giving to the other person, not in taking from the other person and my guess is because I'm sure a lot of you are like me you find sexuality not for mentally the giving of another person but for taking something that you need from them and you don't think about it in such strong terms but when you think about it it is for your own pleasure your own satisfaction and for you ultimately it is not so that person might find life it is not so that person might find healing and comfort and oneness and trust it is so that you might have a moment of satisfaction. And I'm not saying you like y'all do it and I don't. I'm saying like, this is still something inside of my marriage that I have to focus on. Or else I'll lay in bed and want something from her. And that, in, that from the beginning, from the beginning is wrong. And I will find a small degree of pleasure in it. I will not find pleasure life in it. So that, I think, really ties in. uh, Hey, we're getting through. Fifth scripture. Okay, one more to go after this. Uh, That brings us to this place in Romans 1 where I really want to apply this idea specifically to where we are. Uh, We're going to be in Romans 1, 18, and we'll go down to 25. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth For what can be known about God is plain to them. So this is drawing on that wisdom passage. What can be known uh, about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. So you're going to see as the order and beauty and creation of the world exists that we can understand the attributes and divine quality and nature of God in them. The heavens declare the glories of God. The skies proclaim his handiwork, right? Right. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. People who claim that God doesn't exist or God's not good, they're without excuse because creation itself speaks it. Uh, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but here's where we're going to land. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Why were they futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts darkened? Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Why did they become fools and think they were wise? Because of this. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. And you're going to see wrapped up in Romans 1 is specifically everything that's gone wrong from the beginning where we trade God for the creation, for we trade God's ways for our ways, and we trade the worship and the pleasure of doing it his way for the worship and pleasure of doing it our way so instead of worshiping God we worship creation for instead of using and bringing order and bringing life to creation for the glory of God we take creation and we fashion it into what we want and we do with it what we please so that we can have what we want because ultimately we worship ourselves that's Romans 1 that's Romans 1 it's heavy and it's it's strong but in it and as i think about sexuality it's exactly what happens i want to take another human and use that human as an object for my pleasure i want to take pictures of another human and really dehumanize them so they are just an object for me and my pleasure, so that I don't take sexuality in the God-given way for the glory of God, for the cultivation of life in another individual, and I use it just to get what I want out of it. This, in sexuality and in every other facet of life, is how we have been doing things. That is what humanity is prone to do. Uh, So, I think a couple ways that I'm just going to hit really quickly on that uh, the first way that seems obvious and really, really uh, all over the place in our culture is sex for sport. That if we just protect ourselves, you know, and it'll just be a good time, it'll be sweet. Like, and that I actually go out. I mean, I remember doing this before I was a believer. I actually go to the bar for the purpose of finding another human being to sleep with so that I can have pleasure for a night. Luckily, God did not gift me or grant me uh, any success in that. (laughs) Um, But definitely, was I set out to do it, A lot, yeah, yeah, totally. To take another human as the object of my pleasure when they are not an object, they are a human, and my purpose in life is to find life in my Father and then convey that life to the rest of humanity. So this isn't about, hey, God's got some rules about sex for you. It's so shallow. It's so dumb. He loves you. He cares for you. He's for your good. He wants life for you. And he wants life for the rest of humanity also. I mean, we'll we'll get there. That one is really linked to one that I think more of us have engaged in, and that is sex for finding compatibility. In The confines of a semi-monogamous, remotely committed dating relationship where I do love the person, it's probably best that we live together and sleep together so that I can find out if you're good at sex before we get married. And we don't say it that way. We just engage in the sex because sex does feel good, and it's really hard not to because we're wired for it. But the justification that we come up with is, we've got to find out if we're any good at this thing. What if we get married? It doesn't work or something. So here we find out. Here we find it out. It is explicit in Scripture, and I don't know why it's explicit in Scripture, and it doesn't give us all the reasons explicit in Scripture, that sex is confined to The marriage bed of a man and a woman. Why does it say that? I can only give you like some obvious reasons I see. You are dabbling with something that has the power to create a human being. And if that being is not raised inside of a home that has a lot of trust, a lot of security, a lot of giving, a lot of serving, then that child will be damaged. And I don't have to like prove a point to anybody. I don't have to prove that point to you guys. A lot of you were raised inside of a home that was not that way and you felt the damage. You felt the damage. You're dabbling with something that has the power to unite you emotionally and physically with another human. And doing that occasionally and recreationally, is incredibly dangerous because when you are united with something and then for whatever reason you don't like the way they dress anymore, they start hanging out with the wrong people, and you break that, that hurts and it's damaging. And it doesn't just damage you and hurt you now. It will affect your marriage. It will affect who you do decide to unite with forever. I'm still dealing with the effects of me having slept with five people before I got married. Those thoughts don't go away. Those emotions haven't left. Okay? It's not like it's like it's it's not that Jesus doesn't redeem and heal, but it's it, it is that there is pain in the process. It's not like, oh, it's gone. It's real. It's real. Uh, just uh, your relationship, your relationship will define how good sex is inside of the marriage. Sex will not define how good your relationship is inside of the marriage. In your marriage, in your relationship, the amount of time and energy and service you devote to the other person will define how good sex is inside of your marriage. It will not be sex that drives the goodness of your relationship. So thinking that a justification for y'all living together and sleeping together before you get married will be to find out if we can just do this thing sexually, it's, it's a complete lie and it completely undermines the purpose for which sex was given, which is to put life into another person and all you're doing is taking life from that person nightly. Um, just okay. Let me jump in. So, so sex recreationally, sex to find compatibility. Uh, you, if you think this is about compatibility, the you are opening yourself up to a place of vulnerability that is unmatched in the human experience. You're opening yourself up to a place of. Um, complete exposure to another human being so you better make like really 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 sure that that's a person you want to open that stuff up to and you better be sure that they are man enough or woman enough to handle what they're going to see when they get there you are opening everything that is in you up to another human you better like be sure that person is man enough to handle that and they're not just going to ruin you and take from you what they want and be gone. Um, okay, so the, uh, this other one is, is obvious and it's huge. And I hate that it's so huge and it sucks. Um, is how pervasive pornography is in this. So instead of a man and a woman outside of a relationship, we actually have uh, a man or a woman watching another man and a woman engage in something so real. And what's weird about pornography is we're watching them do it in an unrealistic fashion. We are objectifying and watching something that is not true to reality. It is a performance. It's a performance. And so while those images never leave you, and in this way it's quite obvious that this is really only for your pleasure for just a moment. And what you're going to find, most of you, actually all of you who have gone down this path, and I'm one of them, what you're going to find is you have to get increasingly dark and increasingly twisted and increasingly perverse to be satisfied or gratified in what you're seeing. You have to get further and further down the rabbit hole to enjoy it anymore. And what you're going to find is that when you do find this person that you want to open up to, all that's going to be inside of you. And when you do open up to them, you are going to put, you're going to put expectations on them that have come from your video of an unrealistic sex act. And you're going to put the expectations that you saw in there, and these things that are getting increasingly dark and perverse, you're actually going to put that on your spouse. And where you were supposed to breathe life into them, you're going to wonder why they don't do what the person in the video did. And you're going to find that sex actually isn't satisfying anymore because it's not in line with what you've been seeing. And so the damage that we do early on actually like blows up when we get married and it doesn't go away, and again, it's nothing beyond the healing of the cross of Jesus, but it is painful and hard, and it doesn't just go away. Um, so, again, it steps outside the nature of The way God has ordained for you to be alive, to give life, and you actually just use it to suck life. Uh, The last one, I didn't, uh, honestly, I didn't want to even, I wanted to, like, touch on it. um, But I'm afraid you probably won't hear uh, another rational biblical explanation for this. uh, And you will be bound to listen to the idiots that they put on TV talk about this, and so I don't do this to make a bigger deal out of this than anything else. I do it because I'm really afraid you're not going to hear an actual rational biblical explanation of this one. Uh, Like I said, I'm afraid you'll hear idiots on TV that the media is putting up there, some backwoods idiot. Um, So the, the third way that we see this play out is homosexuality. Uh, And like I said from the very beginning, my desire uh, is to not teach the church's teaching and to not give my personal belief. Like I said from the very beginning, my desire is to understand what Jesus handed down to the apostles. And I believe for a a, a thousand different reasons that I would love to get into at some point, that the New Testament is actually what was handed down from the apostles, that it's accurate and it's for the good of man and it's for the life of his people. Um, So... As we get into this, I'm going to do this fairly briefly, but I want to play it out. Uh, if you have questions, if this makes you angry, if this makes you frustrated, if any of that happens, please, please do not hesitate to email me. I want to hear that. Uh, and I would please say, please don't email me with your anger. Uh, you can do that. That's fine. But if you really want to talk about it, that's that's where I, I want to be. That's that's what I'm here for. Um, and so what I've seen... Uh, and what i 've seen is the church mishandle this in two ways that are huge and uh, really really bad uh, for for the life of the people of God um, the, fir- the, the first error is what 's gone on for probably the last hundred years or longer in that we 've elevated a specific sin over another sin we 've elevated uh, something we 've elevated homosexuality over drunkenness over adultery over all of the other sins that are present within the church and we elevate it and we excommunicate we elevate it because it makes an other class and an us class and the other class is different and worse than us and so we've seen the church do this forever and ever and ever and it's wrong and it's destructive and it is broken people and I'm close to people that this is harmed and it makes me really angry Um, So the first way that the church has done that is by elevating and excommunicating um, and making it worse than everything else. And then the other way, because of that, what's going on right now, and it's so dangerous too, is that the church is saying that it's okay and it's right and it's good and that it's actually okay for a pastor who speaks on behalf of God um, to bless this. And so I want to read, I'm just going to read the text. Like I said from the beginning, my understanding is that Jesus passed down the teachings through his apostles and that I'm to place my life underneath them. So I didn't come up with this because I'm trying to make this class of people or anything. I've come up with this because I'm trying to understand what scripture is teaching me. Um, And so before I read this text, I would say if you're trying to gain your understanding of whether homosexuality is a sin or not a sin, do not go to the Old Testament for it. There is so much in the Old Testament that we do not do, that we don't live by. The Old Testament says don't eat shrimp, and we eat shrimp. So if you go to the Old Testament without understanding what Jesus said about the Old Testament, you're going to build an argument that, that's dumb and it's idiotic. So don't go to the Old Testament and say, look, it says it's bad. Because you're going to find a thousand other things that you do all the time that the Old Testament says is bad. We have to understand how Jesus interpreted the Old Testament before you go to the Old Testament for interpretation of the commands of God. Okay, so what do I do? I go to the New Testament, and the New Testament teaches what Jesus handed down to the apostles, what the apostles handed down to the early church. And some churches want to disregard this part of Scripture, but I am not able to do that. So, the last one. Uh, there are three texts in the New Testament that are going to deal with this. Romans 1.25 is going to be the first place. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6.9-11 is where we're going to see it played out here. And 1 Timothy one. To eight I'm sorry uh, eight I'm sorry first uh, Timothy one eight to eleven so first uh, corinthians six nine to eleven or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters nor adulterers nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And I thank God that this is the next verse. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. What the church has done has plucked one of those out and preached on it and forgot about the rest of them or actually goes there and says, yeah, the rest of them are wrong, but that one's okay. If I am bound by Scripture, if I'm bound by New Testament teaching, if I'm bound by the teachings of the apostles, which I believe if we claim Christ we are, it's listed in a list and I can't erase it from the list. And so how then do I think about it if the New Testament does in all three of these places call it a sin? How do I think about it? There's the huge question, why would God make someone this way if He expects them not to act according to this way? And I think if you understand the gospel at all, that actually would make no sense to you. We we were all born broken. We are all born innately sinful. That's the gospel. Jesus comes in Matthew 5 and says everyone on the planet is guilty of sexual sin. Everyone on the planet is guilty of sexual sin. If you've looked at another person who's not your spouse with lust in your heart, you have committed adultery. So, it's not about elevating one sexual sin over another sexual sin or saying these people deal with it and these people don't. Every single one of us was born with desires in our heart that are not in line with the commands of Scripture. So to take one out and say, this one seems like it's really innate. The Gospel is for broken humanity who was born innately sinful and apart from God. My particular innate sin is that I get really addictive over really damaging things, and I spend a lot of my life doing cocaine and smoking weed and taking pills and drinking too much. It's in me. I gotta watch, like, how much TV? I gotta watch everything that I do, or else I'll become addicted to things in a second. And I have a thousand other ways that I twist every other part of life. And I was born that way. I was born that way. The gospel of Jesus is that there is forgil- for forgiveness and healing for everyone who struggles with all kinds of sin. And what scripture teaches is that that homosexuality is one of those. So the question the question. Uh, that I think is huge right now, that is not really being talked about in the media or anything. And, and I had a family member ask me this. This is really hard for me to talk about and understand. had a family member ask me, can I be gay and still go to heaven? Can I be gay and still go to heaven? And while I think that's super hard, I think what we're not talking about is the real bottom of that question. The real bottom of that question is, is repentance integral to the Christian life? Is repentance integral for the Christian life? Because if we understand entrance in and life in the Christian community, if I claim Jesus, what I have claimed is that everything in me is sinful and wrong and that I need an act of God for God to love me and cleanse me. Everything in me is innately sinful and wrong. And the only way that I'm brought into the family of God and find repentance and find, he- and find healing is that I lay down my identity, my life, and all my desires, the good ones, the bad ones, at the feet of Jesus and try to live in the way that He has called me to live. So can I be gay and go to heaven? Can you be born gay? with desires for the same sex yeah absolutely i think the fact that christians are arguing against that is dumb and they don't read their bibles can you be born to that can you completely give into that and try to can you follow jesus and live the lifestyle no i don't think you can you're gonna have to pick one or the other And so if you don't believe that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God, given to humanity for the forgiveness of sins, then talking about homosexuality, whether it's bad or good, really doesn't matter. It doesn't. This is about for those who believe that Jesus is the Son of God who was given for their sins. I believe that. Now what does that call me to do? That calls me to lay down my life, my identity, everything I was born with, all my desires and everything at the feet of Jesus, and then I allow Him to guide and direct my life according to the pattern that He has given for the good of me and for the glory of Him. So can I have these desires The first thing I would say is, if that's you or if you're friends with somebody who has these desires, do not let our freaking culture tell you that's your identity. That's dumb and idiotic. That is not your identity. Your identity is something deeper than your sexual desires. Your identity, my identity is deeper than the fact that I like girls. That's, that is crazy, that we would grab on to the idea that my identity is, is who the, the type of people I like. That's ridiculous. We cannot buy into that. And you cannot let the people that you love who struggle with this begin to think that. I believe they can be born with it from the beginning. Yes, absolutely. 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 And what's required of them is what's required of me is what's required of you. That we lay down our desires at the feet of Jesus, our identity and everything, and allow him to guide and allow him to lead. So the last thing I'm going to say about that is not even about that. Um, So like I said, if you have frustrations with that, as I understand it, is the orthodox teaching of the apostles handed down for the generations and some in the church have jumped off of that because they don't like it and some in the church have elevated it because they're dumb. But as I understand it, we are all the same. We're all the same. God is calling us all to do the same thing. Do I believe that's harder to lay down? Maybe. But it was really, really hard for me to lay down my life. Really hard. It took me a long time. So I was 22. So is it harder? I don't know. I don't know how you quantify that. All I know is the demand is the same on all of us. We start at the same place. The demand is the same. We end at the same place. If we have followed Jesus. So the last thing I would tell you, uh, just as we're talking about this, uh, is where I feel like most of us are. Where I feel like most of us are. Uh, there's a book called The Great Divorce. It's another book by C.S. Lewis. I'm talking about C.S. Lewis a lot tonight. I don't normally do that. There's a book called The Great Divorce. Uh, the book was written as a reaction against another book called The Marriage of Heaven and Hell. Uh, the Marriage of Heaven and Hell was not a, a Christian book, uh, but in it, the author is is stating That if you have two things that seem opposed, if you just wait and pull back and investigate both of them, you'll find that they are not incompatible. So he says that about heaven and about hell. That if we understand this, that's why he called the marriage of heaven and hell. That two things that seem incompatible, if we just look and try to understand and we try to be, uh, make compromise, that we'll see that they can actually go hand in hand. And C.S. Lewis writes a book called The Great Divorce, uh, which is opposed to that view of the marriage of heaven and hell. And in the book, the way this plays out is really beautiful. I I don't understand, um, I don't understand how he came with it, but it's just perfect. The book is, is another narrative. It's about these people who live in Greytown. And what we find out is Greytown is supposed to be hell. Uh, that people in Greytown are actually moving further and further and further away from each other. Nothing is really real there. There is no satisfaction. There's no life in this place. And so this bus actually takes them to heaven. And so what we see in this story is these people get on this bus and they take this ride to heaven and they go from hell to heaven. And when they get to heaven it's so much brighter than they can even take. And they get out of the bus and it's like the grass doesn't bend underneath their feet. And it's almost like they're ghosts in this place. Like the place is so real and powerful and beautiful that it makes them uncomfortable. And so they're there and they're trying to like even walk around and the grass hurts their feet. It's almost like coming through their feet. And then they see in these in the distance these beings of light start coming toward them, coming toward them and coming toward them. And then when they get there, these beings of light were people from their past who actually live in heaven, who had committed to Jesus is what you later find out. And you see Uh, Each one of these people on the bus, one of the people from their past comes to them and they're like, hey, come with me to the mountains. Come with me to the mountains. I want to show you what's in the mountains. And every one of those people on the bus, there's something in them that won't let them. And the one that's really important, though, I think the one that's really beautiful, is this one guy comes to another guy who's been on the bus, and he's an intellectual, and he's really intellectual about everything. And on the bus, he's like, oh, this is why there's no satisfaction in Greytown, and this is why there's no satisfaction in Greytown. And he gives all these intellectual reasons for why there's no satisfaction in Greytown. And then he gets to heaven, and this being comes up to him, and it's this guy from his past who he used to have intellectual conversations with. And, and the being is just, come with me to the mountains. Come with me to the mountains. Leave Greytown behind. And, and the guy... He says this beautiful thing. He says, Yao, yeah, go. If you can promise me a greater scope for my usefulness and inquiry without end. Because he wants, he can't leave. This intellectualism of the past. He can't leave the notion that everything is something that we just need to comprehend and there's no right or wrong answers and we just want to talk about and intellectualize everything. He can't leave that intellectual freedom behind is what he calls it. And, and, and the, the other guy says, just come with me to the mountains. And he says, only if you can promise a greater scope for my usefulness and you can promise inquiry without end. And the other guy, the other guy says to him, I want to get this right. He says, I can't promise you a greater scope for your usefulness because you're not needed there. And he says, I, I can't promise you, I can't promise you uh, a greater use of your gifts, only forgiveness for having perverted and misused them in the past. And I can't promise inquiry without end. You're going to the place of answers and you will see the face of God. And what we're seeing in the story is this, that there is no marriage between heaven and hell. And that the call on that man, the call on my life, and the call on your life is that we leave everything behind and that we follow Jesus and we follow him to the mountains to see the face of God. But we don't get to hang on to one while we pursue the other. And I think that most of us are in that place. We want to see, can I still do what I want, get what I want, live how I want to live, and follow Jesus also. And the story of that book is so beautiful and so right. Because I'm sorry, the answer is no. But the beautiful promise is is that God has ordained life And pleasure and goodness for you, his children, if we follow him. And there is greater life to be had as we lay down at the feet of King Jesus and follow him the way he says to follow me and not try to twist life into the way we want it to go and to have what we want, get what we want, and do what we want. It is a lie. It is a lie. It is a lie.